If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the new Zoom Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Only two days until Christmas and Santa's on his way. Here's wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a more united Happy New Year. Here's Scott Thompson. There you have it. All right. That'd be nice. A less polarizing New Year. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. Welcome to the fun. Last one. Last one for 2022. Uh, been a great ride, an interesting ride. We'll look back on some of it over the course of uh, the show today. So I uh, hope you're going to join us. Hope you hang around. When it gets hectic here, we love to go up uh, in space to see what's going around. Poke around and see. Paul Delaney with us, uh, past professor of astronomy, York University, and with us now. Paul, thank you for for your time. I hope you're doing well. Am indeed, Scott. Nice to be here. So uh, we were talking uh, earlier on, actually, with York uh, in, in regard earlier in the week about the leak in the Russian uh, capsule at the International Space Station. Give us a little bit of, of an update there and exactly what's happening, because they thought, I guess, it was debris. Is it still that the thought or is it some sort of other malfunction? At this point in time, the micrometeorite uh, theory hasn't been completely discarded. During December, we have what we call the Geminid meteor shower, and that's when we pass through a stream of debris. Therefore, the amount of activity in orbit from micrometeorite impacts goes up. And so there was a bit of a thought that maybe it was one of the Geminids that had struck Soyuz. That is not really now still being considered, but they I, I think it'd be fair to say they're still investigating. They they really don't know, unfortunately. They do know that uh, the Soyuz spacecraft has lost a lot of radiator fluid, which it needs uh, for re-entry. And at this moment in time, it's not at all clear that the vehicle is spaceworthy. But whether or not it was a manufacturing defect, whether or not it was a micrometeorite impact, or indeed was it space junk that uh, has landed on Soyuz, all of those uh, are still being investigated. So um, you're saying, and we had heard this, that there was some question as to whether, it, as you put it, spaceworthy. Um, how do you make that calculation and what happens then? Not only to the crew, but to the craft itself. Well, the craft itself, I mean, if they decide that it is not worthy to uh, re-enter, they will literally deorbit it like a piece of space junk and, and throw it into the South Pacific. Uh, and they'll do it in a very steep dive that will basically incinerate the capsule. There won't be any parachute deployments and so on and so forth. Uh, they certainly haven't decided they're going to do that at this point in time. I think they want to get to the bottom of it categorically, what has caused the hole. Uh, if, however, they do decide that it's just not safe enough to return, even if they do figure out exactly what it was, uh, there may be sufficient damage that they're just not willing to risk the lives of the uh, astronauts, cosmonauts. They'll so they'll simply launch a new one. Remember, we've got uh, Starliner coming online in April of next year. That's the Boeing Space Taxi. We have got already up there Dragon. So even if we were unable to get a Soyuz vehicle up in time, there are now two other options to bring cosmonauts, astronauts back down. So literally, they would fly up either an under-occupied or an autonomous vehicle up to the International Space Station, swap it out for the Soyuz vehicle that is potentially unspaceworthy, and bring the astronauts back that way. But that wouldn't happen for another two or three months. The concern, of course, is that if they had to evacuate the ISS in that period of time, they don't have enough uh, seats uh, up there at the moment. We've never had to do that. We've been operating for 22 years. And we've never had to evacuate. So it's a pretty slim chance. But, you know, you want to have that lifeboat there. You don't want to be a Titanic. <laughs> hmm. So uh, we'll know more, I guess, in the new year in February-ish. Every, everybody is working very hard on this. Roscosmos, NASA, the Canadarm was in on it because they did a very up-close and personal inspection with Canadarm2 and high-resolution imagery. So it, it's probably the highest concern item on ISS at this moment to get to the bottom of what happened and whether or not the vehicle can be re, uh, returned to service, shall we say. All right, Paul, here we are at the end of the year. Look back to 2022, the most significant space story that stands out to you over this course, uh, over the uh, last year. 
Okay, it's a tie. JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, after mm-hmm. 20 plus years of uh, creation, finally launches Christmas Day of 2021, gets fully commissioned in July of this year. And it's just been such a steady stream of wonderful imagery, keeping my colleagues across the globe gainfully employed. <laughs> uh, I mean, we've seen the imagery, the science that is coming out. It's everything astronomy ever wanted. So, you know, Hubble Space Telescope, we refer to as our discovery machine. I'm not sure what you can do to top that, but JWST is doing that. So that would be a tie for me as number one. And the other one would be the launch of the Artemis One mission uh, that took place in November with the return of uh, the capsule Orion in December. From Mm. all that we can gather, it was a flawless flight or close enough to flawless. And that paves the way for humans to return to the moon within two years onto the surface, potentially three years from now. And NASA wants this to be the starting point for going to Mars with humans. So the Artemis One mission, a huge step forward in human exploration of our solar system. I've got about 30 seconds left here, Paul. Lots of chatter about Elon Musk of late. How does that cross over to SpaceX? Does that hinder them in any way? Are they still uh, a, a backbone of this program that's moving forward? I love SpaceX, but I do wish Elon would be quiet. <laughs> he's, he's a distraction, uh-huh. uh, I think, is is the best way. Yeah, he, he's had great foresight. Let's face it, you know, Tesla and SpaceX, two uh, exemplary technological companies. But unfortunately, when he sort of dips his oar in the water, so as to speak, it's a distraction to both of those companies, including in particular SpaceX. They'll continue going forward. They'll do great things in the coming years. Hopefully Starship will launch very soon, and that'll be the next big trip to the moon and beyond. Paul Delaney with us, Professor of Astronomy, York University. Paul, as always, thanks so much for your time. Have a great holiday. Be well. Best of the season, Scott. Cheers. All right. Let's talk about entertainment music. Look back at the year 2022. Bring in Eric Elper, publicist and music commentator. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. No problem. Thanks for thanks for having me. To start, a uh, word yesterday, and we've talked about this before, uh, a lot of the older artists, heritage artists selling their catalog, but Bieber, the youngest guy, I think, and, you know, he's not that young anymore, I guess, but uh, to do something like this, like you said, possibly for as much as $200 million, what are your thoughts on this? Why now? Yeah, you know, what What we've seen of the older artists like Genesis, um, Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen, the reason why that they're selling their catalog um, in 2022 for big, big money is there's a little bit of a loophole in American tax law. A musician that are making a large sale, um, a one-time sale, pay about less than half as much as they might to a couple of years from now when Biden closes this loophole. Um, It's roughly if you're making more than a million dollars at one time rather than over an extended period of time, then you're taxed at about 10%. Um, In a couple of years, that might be about 40% of that um, income. Um, So that's why you're seeing a lot of artists say, you know what, I'm going to pay 10% right now of 300 million rather than almost half of it to the tax man down the road. What's interesting about Justin Bieber is that if this um, news is correct and he does end up selling his publishing and his catalog to a venture capitalist for about $200 million, he will be one of the youngest people to do it. And he will be one of the the, the artists that they'll have to take the, a, a really big shot that his music is going to be around 20, 25 years from now. It's really easy to say, yeah, Springsteen. Bob Dylan, Phil Collins, we're going to be listening to that for 100 years. We probably will, especially now that somebody's going to have to make back all that money to try to exploit it. Um, But for Justin Bieber, there's always only a handful of artists that continue to get heard and seen decade down the road. And this actually might solidify Justin Bieber for being one of those handful of people, because whoever buys it is going to have to make that money back of their investment. So do you think we're going to see more of this with younger artists, Eric, uh, until this tax uh, and and obviously for tax reasons, it seems. Is is that viable for all of this? Will we see more of this before that uh, comes into effect? Oh, yeah, because if there's one thing that artists um, have is this thing called ego. 
And whenever they see somebody making more money than them, selling out more shows than them, having more streams than them, or more followers than them, make no mistake, they understand it and they want that too. It's what really you know, thrives any artist really from the Beatles to the Stones to the Who to ABBA. Everybody wants to be in that top 1% of the greatest artists of all time. Um, but what's, what's, what the different kind of book that needs to be written about it is that all those artists that you and I grew up with, they had they had this idea of legacy, like they want to be remembered forever. They want to tell that school bully, you know, they were wrong. They want to tell that girl that dumped them in grade eight what yeah. a bad mistake it was. I'm not so sure that these artists like Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber and The Weeknd and Drake, I'm not so sure that they think about legacy in the same way. I think that they see popularity and followers and money in the bank far more important than making their mark on history. So I think you will see a lot of artists if this deal goes through end up calling up their manager and saying, hey, if Bieber got $200 million, how much do you think I'm worth? So does this say something about perhaps they're questioning their longevity? This guarantees them longevity? I think it, it it's more that they want to get paid right away and yeah. they have no interest in, you know, 25 years down the road, even though because like. You know, it's it's really tough to stick around for two years. Forget about, you know, Justin Bieber sticking around for almost 14 now. Hmm. Um, he's a he's he's just a once in a lifetime kind of artist. There's not too many people that started when Justin Bieber did that's still making vital creative music and doing it well and and taking those charts. So I think that that if you're Justin Bieber, you're kind of taking a look at this and saying it's okay for me to get paid now. Um, and I think that that's, what's going to happen to a lot of these artists who are saying, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen five years down the road. And especially coming after COVID when all of these artists would be making hmm. tens of millions of dollars on the road. Um, I think that kind of freaked out a lot of artists saying, well, if this happens again, if Donald Trump gets into the presidency and denies, you know, diseases, um, where does that leave us again? And so they just want to get paid right away for the work. And thank you very much. Is this is there a saturation point for this, Eric, whether it's too many artists selling too many things, too much overloaded on every media streaming, what have you, you know, TV shows uh, and a saturation point with how much they pay? Not now. It, it might be five or 10 years from now. You know, um, when Google first started, it was it was okay to have nine or 10 different search sites and search engines out there. There was Ask Jeeves and there was Yahoo and along with like a, a half a dozen more. Um, but now we know you only need one Google. You need one Amazon. Maybe you only need one Netflix. But five or 10 years down the road, um, what's going to be the the new TikTok that's going to allow these artists to have their music on those sites. You know, right now it's really easy to say Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, like that's, and YouTube, that's it. But 10 years down the road, all of those social media sites might be out of favor with, you know, the three-year-olds today that become 13-year-olds 10 years from now. Um, they're going to be on completely different sites. But, you know, living in a world of, of 500 channels on your TV, they all need music just like they all need actors. So mm. it becomes a little bit of a saturation point, but, you know, maybe only the best survive and maybe a lot of people lose a lot of money. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator. Eric, as always, thanks so much for you. Uh, you've done for us over the course of the year, helping out whenever you can. We very much appreciate it. Have a great holiday. You too. Thank you so much for having me all these uh, over the year. It's, it's been amazing for you for me to, to get a chance to talk to you and talk to the listeners and hope everybody has a safe weekend this weekend. As we mentioned and have been and, and since the uh, we've lit the CHML Christmas tree of hope way back when uh, down at uh, Gore Park, we have been, of course, telling you about the website, trying to direct you there and to contribute to the CHML Children's Fund and the CHML Christmas tree of hope campaign. There's been all sorts of events that have happened over the course of uh, the month and so, and it is uh, coming to a head now with this uh, 
uh, final week and such. We wanted to touch base with the, uh, with Olivia Mackay, president of the CHML Children's Fund, where we are uh, in this year's edition of the CHML uh, Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Olivia, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am just watching the trees sway in the backyard right now. I know it's a little breezy out there, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. I That's why I was. W- shut the lights off because we have a inflatable snowman, and I'm like, oh, he's oh right. Up today. No, he'll be joining Santa Claus up there flying around uh, not too long if you don't do that. That valid point. I actually just saw a coverage on the news, kids, in case you're listening, that Santa has, in fact, left the North Pole. Boy, he's uh, he's taking the long version around this yeah. time, I guess. All right, so give us an update here on uh, where we are. First of all, what can we still do? Uh, obviously, it's December 23rd. Uh, things are closing up as people get ready for the holidays and, of course, the storm that's here today. Uh, but what can we still do? How can we still contribute you can still donate online at 900 chml so we have the uh canada help and uh paypal giving fund uh platforms as well you can text the word donate to 3033 and those are the ways that you can donate online uh, you can still mail us a check if you like all the info is at 900 chml.com as well all right. So uh, obviously the last couple of years have been uh, pretty bizarre with the global pandemic and such. How does this compare to other years? What does it feel like for you? I think it, looking at the toys, much better than the past two years. Like we had toys the past two years, but not the amount that came in. Uh, the past two years we were begging the toys for the charities. So the charities mm-hmm. are still getting them, but they weren't able to come in, you know, pick them out for themselves. And this year they able they were able to do that. And actually on Monday, for anyone who came into the station or popped by the station, you actually could only walk to the stairs. There was just that little pathway that we could get yeah. to the stairs. And by Thursday afternoon, I had uh, the front of the lobby, the elevator shaft, um, majority of the back of the lobby empty. We still have toys, which will have a couple charities actually come in next week. And they'll take those toys to use throughout the year. So they got the toys they need for Christmas. And now they'll take toys that they can use for birthdays or special occasions as well. What about demand this year? Because obviously uh, the last couple of years have been tough for all charities. What's the demand been like this year? One charity told me they were 20% down. So they were looking, you know, coming to us to help fill in that gap. Yeah. You know, the allocations, the requests did go up. We helped out as much as we could. Funding is down for us as well. But one bonus for the children's fund is we don't pay any salaries. So we don't have that overhead. Um, so if, uh, new charities were coming in, we were able to help them out, um, knowing that, you know, money is coming in, but we're not able to always help out what is requested from a charity. So we'll try to balance that act sometimes at Christmas where we'll give out funds and say, we'll give you toys as well. So they're not Hmm. spending that money on toys and that we could help them that way. And talk about some of the events this year that, uh, were big. I know, uh, Pioneer's three centiliter day was uh, big this year as well. Yeah, so over they, sorry, they uh, almost got over 50% more than last year. So they were able to donate $27,600 to the Children's Fund, which will help us throughout the year now uh, going into 2023. And that, that will help so many charities, so many kids. Uh, it was a big event for us uh, looking to continue it next year. We do our golf tournament too, just going back into mm-hmm. July. That's another big event for us. And we raised about 16000 there. We've got the toy drive and then, you know, of course, the Christmas Tree of Hope. That is the biggest fundraising event for us. And then I'll have those numbers tallied up about middle of January and uh, get that out to staff and to the listeners. All right. Again, for more details, hit the website, 900CHML.com, 900CHML.com. All the details there on how you can help us help the kids. Congratulations, Olivia. Man, I know that's a lot of a tough work, hard work that you and the rest of the crew put in to get this happening every single year. Lots of obstacles of late. So uh, it's great to see things moving a little bit more smoothly this year. But congratulations. A great drive. And thank you. Just want to say thank you to Pioneer and Leggett for all the support as well to the Children's Fund. And, of course, all of you out there that have made your way to 900CHML.com, and it's not too late to help us help the kids. Olivia Mackay, President, CHML Children's Fund. Olivia, thank you so much. Have a great holiday. Thank you. Merry Christmas. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Where are we in this mess? Let's bring in Ross Hall, a global news meteorologist. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am well, and uh, yeah, a lot of certainly no lack of uh, of weather to talk about today. That's for sure. I'm I'm guessing you're a pretty uh, busy guy, and you've been on a few shows. Uh, so give us an update where we are now, and what we can expect on the back half of this. Well, I wouldn't even say we're we're on the back half yet. Uh, actually, uh, Hamilton was just uh, included, and so was Northern Niagara in a, a blizzard warning. So I'm not sure if you've been uh, mentioning that mm-hmm. to your listeners. Uh, so that was uh, just added a few minutes ago. That blizzard warning is is expanding, and uh, you know we we mentioned this uh, you know when we were talking about this storm. Sometimes, yes, it, there's heavy snow, but it's that combination of the heavy snow and the strong winds and the prolonged period of those strong winds bringing reduced visibility for a long time, uh, which is the concern. That's the criteria of a blizzard, by the way, for some people who don't know, according to Environment Canada, it's yeah, wind of 40 kilometers or more, uh, visibility of 400 meters or less uh, for uh, at least four hours. And that's what we think is in store for the Hamilton area around Niagara, much of uh, southern Ontario, in fact. Uh, because of this system that is uh, continuing to uh, intensify over the area. And we hear that these winds are going to last like right into Saturday. Yeah, that's right. So we're looking at uh, gusts near 90, possibly even higher than that. We've already experienced gusts over that around uh, the area, say around Port Colburn, for instance, and uh, areas around Niagara have already experienced near hurricane force winds. And those strong winds are going to continue into Saturday morning. They'll start to ease by the afternoon, thankfully. Uh, Excuse me, but we do have a lot more of the wind to deal with and not only the blowing snow and the reduced visibility, uh, but the potential for power outages. I know we've already seen some of that. So that risk continues. And I don't know if you've been outside yet, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we've got wind chills in, in the minus 20s out there as well. So that's another aspect of this story. A massive uh, blast of Arctic air, not only for us, but it's as far south as the Gulf of Mexico. This is a massive, massive uh, storm system that's impacting a lot of people. So when will we start to see a noticeable difference in this, Ross? When would you say, all right, we can come out? <laughs> like, you know, we'll notice a difference. Yes, uh, I would say by the afternoon tomorrow, in terms of the winds, we are going to see, it's just not, we're not going to be at that 80, 90 kilometer per hour range. It will still be breezy and the snow will still be blowing around the freshly fallen snow. Uh, But I think around Hamilton anyway, the snow will ease now head towards the Niagara area though. Uh, or south of Hamilton, uh, I think there's still the chance of some heavier bands of snow sticking around there. Uh, And yeah, especially into Sunday for Christmas Day, not expecting these types of conditions as the system weakens and pushes out of the area. So um, I think for Hamilton, we're we're still dealing with tonight and early, well, through the morning tomorrow. Uh, If you have to, if, if you need to travel, uh, I would I would wait, you know hold off until later Saturday if you can depending on where you're going or even Sunday morning will likely be uh, you know at this point looks better than uh, than certainly over the next 12 to 18 hours or so. So many may look at this Ross and go oh great it's great we're gonna have a white Christmas and uh, here it is the season has started get the skis out but then towards the end of the week it like warms up again and I mean really warms up. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen in my forecasting career, and it's been, well, close to 15 or so years, uh, a flash freeze like we experienced, uh, this, this stark of a contrast in temperature. And I don't recall after experiencing that, seeing temperatures rise to the point that they look to rise next week. So uh, it's going to get messy because areas, we're going to stay cold through mid mid next week, but then it's going to start to get milder. We have some precipitation on the way as well. So the next uh, chapter in this uh, prolonged weather story uh, may be, you know, the possibility, I'm not saying it's going to happen for sure, but could be a bit of flooding if, if we see, you know, especially in the areas that see a lot of snow. And if it's a quick melt with rain, uh, that can easily allow the snow to run off. So we'll have to keep an eye on more weather fun heading into the holiday weekend next weekend. So, yeah, New Year's can look greatly different. It's going to look greatly different than what Christmas is. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, this is a, uh, a short, well, relatively short. It's not going to be one of those situations where we're in an Arctic air mass for weeks. Yeah. It's going to be, while we're experiencing it now, it's going to last uh, through likely mid this week. Is uh, Next week is when things are going to stay cold. Then we warm up. Not to say the Arctic air won't return in January, but we are going yeah. to see at least a break from uh, from that uh, cold air. But, of course, the price to pay is rain. 
Uh, and, you know, I, again, we're going to get a little reprieve here as we go up to like, what, seven or eight degrees or so, maybe even higher than that. But yeah, we can be guaranteed <laughs> it's going to come in January. That's for sure. Uh, but yeah, very bizarre swing in temperature between now and uh, New Year's. Ross Hall with his global news meteorologist. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Ross, as always, thanks time for uh, taking uh, time out of your busy day to uh, fit us in. Much appreciated. Have a great holiday. Thanks very much. You be safe and to all your listeners as well. Uh, have a great holiday. Obviously, the holidays are coming uh, and, and, you know, adding a, a, a little stress to it with a, a little preseason storm just to get us in the spirit. And how do we make it through the uh, whole week with uh, out at least a bun fight or two at the dinner table? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, same with you, Scott. Hope so as well. What's wrong with the bun fight? Exactly. It's a good way to release stress, is it not? I mean, yeah, it's not, absolutely. you know, a bun doesn't hurt. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right. So uh, we've chatted uh, a lot over the course of the global pandemic and such the last couple of years. Uh, how are we now? How are, what is our thoughts now that this is kind of behind us? Because I think a lot of people thought it was the roaring 20s when we got out and we know where we are now. What, what are your thoughts of where our head's at at this point? Uh, I, I think it is, it is such a difficult place to be because at one level, we do just want to act like everything's over. And at another level, we know it's not really over and maybe it could even get bad again. But I think we're all, we've all gotten very good at ignoring that second part <laughs> and just saying, hey, we'll deal with that when it happens. And, and for now, we're going to just enjoy being able to get together again. You know, everything we've been talking about for that sort of Christmas um, gathering of the family. Uh, do every, does everybody seem to be more edgy this year? How do we get by that? There's a lot of divisiveness, yeah. polarization, even before any of this. So uh, it seemed to bring it to a, to a head. How, how do we move past why we're all so angry? Yeah, I mean, we, we've sort of got two issues. We are still all feeling a little bit of chronic stress, and that does make us all a little more edgy. And, you know, during this path, uh, a lot of our families have been – scarred in some way. And, and my family is one of them where, where certain members of the family took mm. a position, let's say when it comes to vaccines or whatnot, others took another different position. Um, and now we find ourselves, you know, worlds apart. And sometimes it feels like we can't even speak to one another. And so the thoughts of being in the same room um, is worrisome for some families, I think, as we come together. Uh, is it different for us now? Uh, can we, is it possible to go through something like this and not come out the other end different in some way? Do we just look at things differently? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, was it was a Joni Mitchell, every, every day we live, uh, things are changed or something. Mm. I, I, won't, I won't get it quite well. Um, but yeah, no, we're, we're definitely different. And I, I do think we do need some strategies, like to the extent we know that, that we and other family members have very different positions on some of these divisive issues. I think it makes a lot of sense for us to reach out ahead of time to those family members and say, hey, listen, when we're all together, let's just avoid those issues. Let's just stick with what, what I call common ground. Let's find that common ground and let's stick with that. And if either one of us sees the other one straying from common ground, we can just say, hey, come on, common ground and, and call the person back because we know it won't go to a good place. We don't want our parents watching us not get along. Uh, and so I think a few strategies ahead of time can help things go a little smoother for a lot of us. Uh, have we learned from this? Are, are we becoming, are we learning how to deal with it? I mean, I hope so. I, I hope I hope we're getting a little better at dealing with the anxiety and understanding it, kind of knowing you know what it is and maybe recognizing that when we're not at our best, when we are on edge, that maybe it's better to walk away than it is to engage um, you know in some of these situations. So I hope we're starting to learn how to manage these situations a little bit. But I mean, the problem is these these reactions we have when somebody pushes our buttons and nobody can push our buttons like family. Um, mm. The reaction we have is some times very quick, very primitive, uh, and we suddenly are in that sort of fight or flee mode where we're kind of noticing we're, you know, fighting back. And, and that's the thing where I hope people can get better at sensing that 
taking that deep breath and, and just kind of saying, you know what, we're not going to go there now. Uh, and, and if that means just sort of smiling and, and walking away <laughs> to, to let that other family member know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow along here. Um, that can be a strong signal to send and, and a nice way to send it rather than escalating anything. Is it good to stay away or do we need to have this, uh, these encounters? Do we need to work through them is the best thing? Oh, you know what to hell with it this year. Yeah, I mean, the, the important thing is when we look at happiness in one's life, the strongest predictor of happiness is the number of close social connections that you have. Hmm. And for most of us, our family is our closest, most dependable social connections. And some of us may have felt that deteriorate um, during this whole period that we've gone through. It is certainly worth getting that back, finding ways. And, you know, I don't think, I, I think not not pussyfooting around these things is the right way or it's the wrong way. How do I want to say this? So, you know, pretending and just trying to avoid the conflicts. I think it's much better to talk to the people and just say, hey, listen, we're on different poles on this and we know that um, and, and we can accept that. But we can also just choose not to visit that territory. And, you know, I think having that explicit discussion with those people that were where these things could happen ahead of time is the best antidote for kind of getting together and, and having a, a set of rules in play where we can all have the enjoyable time and, and build those social connections back, uh, because I think they are really important to get back. Wow, I can see having the discussion with somebody that we're not going to have a discussion about this would end up in that fight that you would have at the discussion anyway, but then maybe it's better to have it ahead of time rather than at the family <laughs> gathering. I, I hope so, not. I mean, I hope you could avoid that, but yeah. So are we recognizing this stuff? I mean, it seems obviously we're talking more and more about mental health. Are we starting to recognize this stuff more? You know, I, I I hope so, but I worry that we're not. Um, it, it's so easy for us to get into that place. So I sometimes talk about the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that, you know, our, our rational selves is, is our sort of our Dr. Jekyll. But when our buttons get pushed, this very primitive version of ourself comes out. And the problem is we often don't notice it's happening. We don't notice until after the fact when we say, oh, I wish I hadn't said those things or, or whatnot. Mm. I hope we have gotten better at, at, at those feelings, at recognizing what's going on in our body, that we are getting angry and that we've perhaps learned some strategies. And, and you know, the first one is just big, deep breath, which is trying to bring you back to that relaxation place and regain that sense of control and not let Mr. Hyde kind of, you know, go wild. Um, but but it's a hard skill to learn. And, and it's one I wish we were starting to teach our children actually as part of the curriculum of school, to be quite honest, because I think it, it takes a, a bit of time to practice these skills before you really get good at them. I can just see everybody around the dinner table just meditating at the same time. <laughs> All right, yeah, everybody, what I, what I, be quiet. Let's meditate. Do, yeah, exactly. Is, is do karaoke or something like that? Yeah, something where exactly. they're where they're singing and laughing together. That's the stuff that builds social bonds. Um, singing, laughing, smiling, telling jokes. You know, those dancing. Those are all very powerful, powerful things. And if we can share some of that with our family, schedule some of those sort of fun times in there. Those are the things that can really bring us close together again. Great advice. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, getting through with the family during the holidays. Steve, thank you so much for the time. All the best to you. Same to you, Scott. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, as we wind down 2022 and look to the future, let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Take a look back at a pretty turbulent year. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Your thoughts on where we are? Obviously, we've been dealing with a global pandemic for the last uh, three years, I guess, going on to now. Uh, your thoughts on, on what stands out for 2022 is the big poli-sci stories and, and where we are today. Well, I think uh, the biggest thing for the for this particular year that just gone by were the truck convoys that began uh, in the uh, January February period, and uh, and the discussions we had about them or the h hearings we had about them, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so I think that is probably going to be the big story that will go down in history for this particular year. 
what about how we handle it all? Does it change our perception of things? Um, you know, as we head into 2023, there's rumors floating around of we could see an election. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, has said, you know, if the prime minister doesn't work with uh, and try to fix health care, good luck with that, that they, he may bring down the government. Are you are you forecasting a, perhaps an election in 2023? No, not. I mean, I, I don't think so. I think that's an empty threat by Jagmeet Singh. Uh, mm. I, I, I'm sure he, you know, looking at all the public opinion polls, he's not going to do any better than he did the last election. And, and the party, you know, doesn't have the money really to fight a good campaign. So I'm, I'm, I'm convinced he's, you know, he's never going to pull the plug on the government, certainly not next year. But I do think, uh, you know, the issue coming up next year will be just how we're ending the year. And it's going to be over this uh, battle over health care. And I think uh, it's not clear to me how it's going to be resolved. I think there's a number of different policy possibilities, but I have a feeling this is going to really, you know, uh, have our attention. And it's not only that it's because it's a fight between the the federal government and and most of the uh, uh, provincial governments, but it's also, it's also, I mean, we... I, I think the the hospitals repeatedly right across the country are going to be constantly strained because we just basically have these various uh, illnesses that have been coming around, not only the COVID, but the, the flu and then some of the others. And, you know, we're just strained. And I just think the, uh, the people who are working in these hospitals are strained. And it's just very hard. You know, I, I certainly think it's going to be very bad probably by the end of January all the way into, into March. So... And I think that's that's going to put still more pressure on all all the political actors. So they'll have to figure out what they're going to do about this. It's interesting you say that, Henry, because many of us chatted during the course of the global pandemic, saying that this is the time. This is when they'll finally address this and 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 make the changes, fixes, whatever it is, reforms in order to make this work. And then after the as the pandemic or the lockouts, I shouldn't say ended, but as things opened up a bit more, mm-hmm. that t- a chatter sort of declined mm-hmm. or, or sort of subsided until the flu season started, and then it picked up again. So you think that this is going to stay in the public eye, and that we may see some real. Uh, a real movement here as far as finding a solution into the next year well, on health care. I think the pressure is going to go up, and I think the pressure is mainly going to be because the hospitals are just can't cope with it. Yeah. They don't have the staff. There's not, uh, you know, that you suddenly you can add some more beds, but you, it's the staff is the real problem. And yeah, and they have to figure out how they're going to do this. And I think you, they have to have some kind of cooperation between provincial governments and the federal government and and I would think that if they don't can't one get one across the board I wouldn't be surprised that we're going to start to see uh, bilateral that is one one province with, with the federal government making its own deal and I think that's going to be a temptation for some of the provinces that are really really you know really um, hard done by you know with with their lack of services their lack of money and and the and the all the illness that they have to confront but I mean, obviously, the the problem, the you know, the federal government, and I guess most of the provincial governments would like to have a, a decision or a policy that goes to everybody, but it may not may not work. So, we'll just have to see. All right. So, your thoughts? We've only got a minute left or so. Uh, whether the prime minister will stay on? He's on holiday this week with his family uh, in Jamaica, so no walk in the snow this time. No. Nope. But do you think he'll stay on for a, an extended period of time, or do you think he'll step away? I think he's going to go to the end of his term. I think. Uh, I, I think basically, you know, in his own, his, you know, in his own to how he sees the world is one thing. I, I think he would like to get back to a majority. And uh, I think he would like to, you know, you get in the scheme of things look like look like he's more successful than his father was in terms of uh, getting uh, four four you know four in a row, even though two of them would be minority. But I'm sure he really believes that at the by the end of the of the of this of the full term here he, that he could get a majority, and he, that's what's probably in his mind. It may be correct. It may not be correct. But I. I think that's how he sees the world. Hey, you know, you bring up a very interesting point, Henry. And uh, when he does eventually step down or whatever happens, people will then decide, uh, then debate who is the better prime minister, his father or himself. And boy, I'm going to have you on for that one. That'll be fascinating. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for your time over the year. We greatly appreciate it. All you can, can uh, all you contribute to the show and such. And have a great holiday. Okay, same to you, to you and yours, and enjoy. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Talking about the year that was, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, uh, DeGroot School of Business, McMaster University, and talk about the big stories this year. Uh, Marvin has uh, written a list for us, and um, the interest rates, obviously, COVID and Omicron and the Freedom Convoy, and then the Shaw Rogers uh, deal as the top three. Marvin is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, warm, and dry. That's all you can ask for on a day like today. So, Marvin, I remember like 10, 20 years ago, uh, well, say 20-ish years, less than 20 years ago when interest rates uh, started going down and down and down. Many asked how long they could stay down. Then all of a sudden, that became the norm, what seemed like for a couple of decades. How much of this interest rate increase was a shock to us? Oh, I think most of it was. So let's put this in context for everybody. Uh, a year ago at this time, a prime rate by the Bank of Canada was 0.25%, just a quarter of a percent. We end the year at 4.25%, four and a quarter percent. That's the fastest rise in the Bank of Canada rate in Canadian history. It's clear the Bank of Canada waited probably now too long to do something about its prime rate as we started to emerge from COVID in a big way. Uh, and then they were playing catch up and their whole game here is to try to get inflation under control. So for everyone out there listening to us, and you and I have talked about this more than anything else during the year, the scorecard of, okay, well, what's the inflation rate? Now, what's the interest rate? What's the unemployment rate? What's the Canadian dollar doing? It has been a bewildering and seesaw year. My bad news is it's still going to be like that for several more months in 2023. What about the employment rate? Because one thing that's been different here is usually when you start to see this sort of uh, uh, trend going, that people start to lose jobs. But still, right. the 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 employment rate seems to be the unemployment rate is quite low. Exactly. This is why, again, people are bewildered. We started the year around six. We've ended the year at five point one percent. That's the lowest unemployment rate in Canadian history. So we had the fastest rise in interest rates in Canadian history. Now we have the lowest unemployment rate and we're worried about a recession. I am worried about a recession halfway through 2023, but we still have over 930,000 jobs uh, available. The people can't find these jobs to fill them with employees. So that we may have a recession, yet it may not hurt all that much. How will this recession be different from others? Shorter as a result of this? Or is this a new world we're entering into where this sort of uh, chemistry happens? Yeah, I'm hoping it's not a new world. And I'm hoping that it's going to be. So here's what I think is going to happen. I think it's going to be shallow. I think it's only going to last a couple of quarters. It'll just be the tiniest, excuse me, decline in our uh, uh, GDP, probably 0.1%, 0.2%, and fairly bloodless mean not a lot of jobs lost and lots of job opportunities if you do happen to lose your job. But it is all part of trying to get the economy back to something stable and break the back of inflation, which hurts everybody. What about the Shaw-Rogers deal? We heard about that for a while. It's kind of gone silent. We're hearing that something's happening through this month and such. But uh, people have been watching this, and now it's kind of uh, gone to the back burners. Are we going to see lower rates? Will this happen? Yeah. So again, remind everybody a year ago at this time, we heard that Shaw and Rogers, Rogers, the number one telecommunications firm, Shaw, the number four communication firm wanted to merge. And of course, the concern is you knock a player out, you reduce competition. Will that see rates go up? So they were having to make various promises. You may remember partway through the year, they said, well, we'll sell the Shaw wireless business to uh, Quebec Corps. And Quebec Corps would have to promise to offer the good rates it offers to the rest of Canada. That sounds like a good part of the deal. And as they were doing these negotiations, can you remember June, July, when all of a sudden Shaw had that one day outage? Oh, my gosh, our world fell apart. You couldn't couldn't connect with your cell phone. You couldn't check the Internet. Oh, my gosh. And then in September, we saw the big three that remained agree that they'd back each other up if there was ever an outage outage like this. Again, never thought they'd get together. We ended the year with the federal government saying we're prepared to approve it, subject to some conditions. The Competition Bureau seemed to be more skeptical. We're going to get this resolved in 2023, and I suspect we'll still see this merger go through. 
Uh, that was my last question. So there you go. All right. The Freedom Convoy, Omicron. And, you know, we remember a year ago, Omicron was just rearing its ugly head and we thought we were getting out for Christmas and that didn't happen. Um, how, what do you predict uh, uh, moving forward? Uh, obviously still supply chain issues and such, but are we going to find ourselves on firmer ground in 2023? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping COVID is moving toward the rearview mirror. So again, let's look back a year ago at this time. Uh, Many people were able to have Christmas, and then the first week in January, Omicron came along, and the provincial governments and the federal governments said, wait a minute, we've got to lock you back down for a while. And that was the story for the first three months of the year. Uh, do you remember when you could suddenly travel, but then you had to be tested when you crossed the border, mm. and then you had to have the Arrive Can app, of course, midway through the year, that went away. But all these concerns about lockdowns and masks, that gave birth to the Freedom Convoy, which didn't just lock down Ottawa. Obviously, that was the one that maybe got the most headlines, but they blocked the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, millions of dollars of trade crossed that bridge every day. They blocked a, a major route at the south of Alberta. Um, that all got resolved. But even now, I need to remind everybody, we still are officially in a pandemic. I am hoping that may disappear this year, and at least COVID will move into that rearview mirror. But until I get the all clear, you just have to keep an eye open. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Groot School of Business, McNasty University, talking about the year that was and what we can expect moving forward. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Marvin, thank you so much for contributing over the course of this year. We greatly love having you on the show and love when you take the time to do it. So thank you so much. Be well. Have a great new year. Thank you. My, my best to everyone else at this season. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, one of our favorite guests to uh, wind up the show. Uh, when you look at international or the international stage, uh, Russia invading Ukraine January 6th in the U.S., and major uh, changes in the aggression of uh, China. Uh, let's talk more about all of this. Elliot Tepper with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. So, Elliot, uh, I'm guessing the Russian invasion of Ukraine at the top of this list. Uh, when this first started, many thought it would be less than a week. It's We're almost at a year now. Uh, did you ever think this would drag out as long as it has? Well, looking back at the year, uh, we can say it really started on January 6th, which was the anniversary of something that it took us maybe a year and now two years to really digest, which was an assault on the U.S. Capitol based on hmm. a president unwilling to yield power after having lose, losing an election. So something so unbelievable, it's taking us a while. In that case, the year started with the reminder and it's ended with criminal refer referrals to, uh, to the Department of Justice in regard to that act. On February 4th, something really interesting happened. Everybody was watching the Olympics in China, but the main thing that happened was politically, geopolitically, was the former formation of a truly audacious plot to change the geopolitics of the world in a fundamental way. On that day, Mr. Putin did something unusual. He actually traveled, which he hasn't been doing because of COVID, we think. And then he went to Beijing, uh, Beijing and he went to the Olympics, but there was a pact signed between Xi Jinping, who willingly signed on with Russia to say that this is an alliance without borders, and they had a long document that they were going to really all put down any color revolutions. People's power would not dislodge their, uh, their dictatorships, basically. Basically, then a green light was given to go ahead with the invasion on the 24th of February. And this is really the return of history in all kinds of ways, because now we had a war of conquest by one state against another, something that we thought was just uh, just not part of the post-war world, that we had all the safeguards in place and that we had all the norms of behavior. All that went out the window. And as you pointed out, it was supposed to be a one-week war, basically. The one-week war was going to eliminate the government of uh, Ukraine and be replaced by uh, a puppet government, which would then be incorporated, Ukraine basically incorporated into Mother Russia. And that would change the geopolitics of the world enormously because that would take uh, Russia, backed by China, really into the heart of Europe. Uh, NATO would be dis uh, basically disassembled. Uh, all of the possibilities of future aggression, Moldova would almost certainly be rolled up into that, Belarus. Then what about the pressure on the Baltic states and, states and Poland? So it was a very audacious move by 
two non-democratic states to change how world politics works. And there's a lot of implications that came out of that, of course. You bring up a very valid point, Elliot, and, and starting with the timeline, this started uh, January 6th with what happened in Washington, then the following month, um, the invasion and such. How much did the instability or the appearance of instability on January 6th, uh, the instability of the United States, of, of the former president, of what have you, do you think that added to this other instability where, you know what, nobody's driving the bus here. If we want to do something, do it now. We'll never know, perhaps, what actually triggered the final decision in Mr. Putin's mind to go ahead and do this. We do know that uh, he had taken the measure, he thought, of the Trump administration and indeed thought that the Trump administration was indebted to him for his assistance in bringing Donald Trump to power. We know that whole long story about how Trump... Uh, seem to have a, a, a soft spot in his heart for somebody uh, that might have, uh, let's say, information about Mr. Trump that would put him in a, in a negative light. So we know there was some assistance by, uh, and this was just back in the news, actually, there was some assistance by Russia to bring uh, Donald Trump to power. Collusion is another issue, but assistance clearly was there. Meta was just now fined. That's Facebook was just fine for their role in the Cambridge Analytica. And that's a long, mm. long story about Brexit and so forth. But when you stand back from it, what we have as a result of these events, these two really startling events, a president who won't yield power and tries to overturn an election and Russia with China trying to overturn the existing world order. It, it, these are truly momentous. And here's the um, kind of, takeaways on the negative side on that. What we have now, Scott, is that truly a battle between, as it's been put, democracy and autocracy. And we have the possibility now of a war of conquest being re-legitimized. Uh, you'd think China would be worried about that, but they apparently feel invulnerable. One of the things to come out of this is there's now a global rearmament in a way that was one year ago just unforeseeable. Can you imagine... Mm. Scott, Germany rearming in the way it has, turning on a dime and saying, we are at a hinge of history. And Japan is rearming. Japan, Japan yeah. Budgets mm -hmm. are up everywhere. So the one of the big takeaways of the looking back over the years is that the world is a much more, um, a much more traditional pre-Second World War uh, kind of existence. You know, as I say, history has returned. And the biggest question of all out of all of this, and the biggest concern of mine, is that we now have a nuclear threat today that we didn't have a year ago because of the possibility that Mr. Putin keeps raising that he would use nuclear weapons and also the uh, careless, reckless uh, use of um, territory inside the nuclear plants of Ukraine that Russia has taken over and occupied. I'm worried about accidental release there. So a more nuclear world, a, a more armed world, in a world where autocracy seemed to have been on the march, that's some of the big takeaways, I think, of the past year. Not the only so, one, some of them. So with, with that on the march, where do you see 2023? I mean, obviously, we can't make predictions here. We can try, though. Um, where do you see, do you see this coming to a head? I mean, who's, who's going to, who appear, to appear the most dominant in 2023? One of the things that's happened, uh, I think, recently, and, and we've can say maybe more on the positive side is that there's been a, a realization going on that just genuinely is a battle between autocracy and, and democracy. The President Zelensky's incredible speech that he just gave said terrorist, ter terrorist states have found each other. So we see now the emergence of a more formal relationship between Iran and Russia, Russia and North Korea. Uh, the provision of arms. I'm very concerned, by the way, what Russia is doing in return for Iran. Uh, but inside Iran, we have now over four months now of an uprising. And that uprising is not just we have to do better. This regime has to do better. They have to deliver. It's we have to get rid of the regime. One of the things I think to take positive note of is that the loss of legitimacy by dictators is a noted feature of 2022. And going forward into 2023, it's likely to show up. China, 
uh, is not likely to have Xi Jinping removed from power, but he clearly has lost legitimacy. He's been rattled by the, uh, the open defiance of him and the party. And now he's gone from all these clampdowns to taking them all off. There's going to be <clears throat> terrible loss of life as a result in China. But the loss of legitimacy there, the loss of legitimacy, I think, in Russia, which is going on globally, but inside Russia, uh, we'll have to, and it, certainly in the case of Iran, all of that, I think, is positive. And a lot of that, by the way, is being led by women. And I think that's young women and women uh, across generations, backed up by men across generations. I think that's notable features looking back and then looking forward. Here's hoping uh, we're opening our eyes. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, I love having you on. Thanks so much for all you contribute to this show. We greatly appreciate it, uh, and we hope to continue this next year. All the best to you. Have a great year. Have a great, uh, happy new year. Thank you, Scott, and everybody else who's listening. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I think Grandma must have been related to the daddy in John Denver's Christmas classic, Please, Daddy, Don't Get Drunk This Christmas. It's a theme. <laughs> I think it's time to write some new Christmas songs. Maybe with, maybe, well, last maybe night, with the... You know, last night we were talking on the show about why it is that the Christmas classic movies have stopped being made. They were mm. consistently being made. Every few years you'd have another one like Elf mm. or like Christmas Vacation or whatever. 20 years now it's been. What, what's the Christmas movie in the past 20 years that you go to on a yearly basis and say, I got to watch that? There are none. That's a good point. I never thought of that. But you know why I think a lot of this is? Is because they get so much mileage out of these. Because whether the same thing if you're a band or an artist and you record a Christmas song, whether you've done anything at all, every year this comes back and generates more revenue for you. Maybe. I mean, one of the questions I had is, are we just way more cynical and angry now and we don't have yep. the capacity to <laughs> find a movie that makes us all as a, like, again, something like Christmas Vacation. There are parts in Christmas Vacation that uh, people would say, yeah, that's kind of offensive. It's a, it's a little it dark. Okay, it was okay to laugh at it once upon a time. Now you put that out and someone will say, you can't yeah. watch that movie. That's, that's right. That, that yeah, or something ist or whatever, and and so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the bun fight at the Christmas table becomes an abusive situation that shouldn't be seen. That's right. Now the police are called in, and someone's being charged for assault with a deadly pastry, <laughs> with a deadly bun. All right. Uh, I was going to ask you what your hope is for 2023. I'm hoping for more unity. I'm hoping for less divisiveness. And on that point, why is it that we feel we have to belong to a side as a society? Why do we have to belong to a team? Um, you know, I, I was kind of proud that I voted for all political parties or most of them, and you know, uh, depending upon, you know, what the flavor of the day is or who's got the best, that's where I'm going to go. But now it seems we're stuck in our teams. Either you're blue, either you're red, either you're orange, and I don't want to talk to anybody else from the other team. Why is that? And not only that, uh, first of all, let me echo your statement. It would be fantastic if we could have more unity in 2023. Do I think that'll happen? It'll be lovely if we could have more unity in 2023 is my answer to that question, which is not answering <laughs> at all because I'm doubtful. But it's not just that we have to belong to a team and that we have to win. It's that it seems that we also have to demonize anyone who's on the other team. They can't simply be someone with whom I disagree. They must be yeah. the devil incarnate. I mean – I was just reading before you called. There was a great column in the National Post. Uh, let me just see who wrote it. I don't even know who wrote this. Uh, Randall Denley. Don't know Randall Denley. Um, but he says, yeah, we've had him on from the Ottawa Citizen, too. Okay. Yeah, he's right. uh, that All interesting. Yeah, I saw All this. politicians aren't demons. We only make them so. And he points out, you know, yeah. uh, 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 Doug Ford does not want people to die. That He does not sit at home thinking of ways to make people <laughs> die. And and Dalton McGinty did not sit in his office like like you know what's his name from the Simpsons and uh, let's find ways to harm people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Whether we agree with them or disagree with them, whether we think that they are smart or dumb, whether we think that their ideas are motivated by whatever, the reality is there are very 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 few people who would ever seek a job like that with legitimate harm as their goal. As legitimate yeah. harm. I mean, yeah. I'm trying to think. Who would, Even who Donald would, Trump does it by accident. 
I, I'm go- well, it's true. I'm, I mean, I'm going back and you look at a bunch of dictators or authoritarian leaders. I mean, Hitler or Mao or or Stalin or something like they're looking going, yeah, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to get rid of people. Well, that's a very different thing from I have a plan for how to deal with things. And everyone says, you just you don't care if children die. But that's where we are. That's where we are. That's a that's the go to now. You you don't care. Well, maybe they care. Maybe they think there's a different answer to it. But, you know, it's not your answer. So that must mean you don't care. Do you have have a second? Because I got I got an example of this. I know you got to run. I coached kids hockey for a number of years. I loved it. I loved being on the ice with the kids. The kids were amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But any time there was a situation where if something didn't happen, a kid didn't play for a shift or something like that, there might have been two reasons why it could have happened. One benign and one with malicious overtones. Inevitably, the parent after the game would assume that it was for malicious reasons. And my favorite one was I had this kid who didn't play the last two periods. And after the game, dad came up and he was fired up. And he was giving it to me for why didn't you play my kid for two periods? Why did you bench him? And I finally said, are you done? Your kid told me early in the second period he was going to barf if I put him back on the ice. <laughs> so I let him sit on the bench. And about four times I asked him, would you like him to go back? Would you like to go back on? He goes, yeah. no, coach, I'm still going to barf. But that's that's exactly what yeah. we're doing in politics. No one yeah. said, oh, is there a good reason, a, a compelling reason? It's always there must be something evil that's being done. So, uh, you know, I'm with you. I I would hope that we could find a way to be kinder and maybe give each other the benefit of the doubt a little more. And and who knows, maybe maybe 2023 will be magical that way. Scott Radley with us coming up on the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for doing this. Much appreciated. Thanks for all you've contributed uh, to the show over uh, the year and such. And have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You as well. Have a Merry Christmas. And uh, to your audience that tunes out when I come on, hey, it's okay. Have a Merry Christmas. No. And to the rest, we'll wish you Merry Christmas in the next couple hours. But no, I, I appreciate coming on and I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. Wait a sec. Before I do this, Merry Christmas and have a Happy New Year from my family to yours. Here's the last word. Merry Christmas, Scott. Happy New Year to you and to new wintertime drivers. You see those red signs on the road? The ones that say stop. They are not suggestions. Please bring your rolling death machine to a complete stop before carefully proceeding to Grandma's. 